Chapter 4 Sir James seems determined to do everything you wish, said Celia, as they were driving home from an inspection of the new building site. He's a good creature, and more sensible than anyone would imagine, said Dorothea, inconsiderately. You mean that he appears silly? No, no, said Dorothea, recollecting herself and laying her hand on her sister's a moment but he does not talk equally well on all subjects. I should think none but disagreeable people do, said Celia in her usual purring way. They must be very dreadful to live with. Only think, at breakfast and always. Dorothea laughed. Oh, Kitty, you are a wonderful creature. She pinched Celia's chin, being in the mood now to think her very winning and lovely, fit hereafter to be an eternal cherub, and if it were not doctrinally wrong to say so, hardly more in need of salvation than a squirrel. Of course people need not be always talking well. Only one tells the quality of their minds when they try to talk well. You mean that Sir James tries and fails? I was speaking generally. Why do you catechize me about Sir James? It is not the object of his life to please me. Now, Dodo, can you really believe that? Certainly. He thinks of me as a future sister. That's all. Dorothea had never hinted this before, waiting from a certain shyness on such subjects which was mutual between the sisters, until it should be introduced by some decisive event. Celia blushed, but said at once, Pray, do not make that mistake any longer, Dodo. When Tantrip was brushing my hair the other day, she said that Sir James's man knew Mrs. Cadwallader's maid that Sir James was to marry the eldest Miss Brooke. How can you let Tantrip talk such gossip to you, Celia? said Dorothea, indignantly, not the less angry because details asleep in her memory were now awakened to confirm the unwelcome revelation. You must have asked her questions. It is degrading. I see no harm at all in Tantrip's talking to me. It is better to hear what people say. You see what mistakes you make by taking up notions. I'm quite sure that Sir James means to make you an offer, and he believes that you will accept him. "'especially since you've been so pleased with him about the plans. "'An uncle, too. I know he expects it. "'Everyone can see that Sir James is very much in love with you.' "'The revulsion was so strong and painful in Dorothea's mind "'that the tears welled up and flowed abundantly. "'All her dear plans were embittered, "'and she thought with disgust of Sir James's conceiving "'that she recognized him as her lover. "'There was vexation, too, on account of Celia.' How could he expect it? She burst forth in her most impetuous manner. I have never agreed with him about anything but the cottages. I was barely polite to him before. But you've been so pleased with him since then. He's begun to feel quite sure that you're fond of him. Fond of him, Celia? How can you choose such odious expressions? Said Dorothea passionately. Dear me, Dorothea, I suppose it would be right for you to be fond of a man whom you accepted for a husband. It is offensive to me to say that Sir James could think I was fond of him. Besides, it's not the right word for the feeling I must have towards the man I would accept as a husband. Well, I'm sorry for Sir James. I thought it right to tell you, because you went on as you always do, never looking just where you are and treading in the wrong place. You always see what nobody else sees. It is impossible to satisfy you, yet you never see what is quite plain. That's your way, Dodo. Something certainly gave Celia unusual courage, 
and she was not sparing the sister of whom she was occasionally in awe. Who can tell what just criticisms Murr the Cat may be passing on us beings of wider speculation? It is very painful, said Dorothea, feeling scourged. I can have no more to do with the cottages. I must be uncivil to him. I must tell him I will have nothing to do with them. It is very painful. Her eyes filled again with tears. Wait a little. Think about it. You know he's going away for a day or two to see his sister. There will be nobody besides Lovegood. Celia could not help relenting. Poor Dodo, she went on in an amiable staccato. It is very hard. It's your favorite fad to draw plans. Fad to draw plans? Do you think I only care about my fellow creatures' houses in that childish way? I may well make mistakes. How can one ever do anything nobly Christian, living among people with such petty thoughts? No more was said. Dorothea was too much jarred to recover her temper and behave so as to show that she admitted any error in herself. She was disposed, rather, to accuse the intolerable narrowness and the purblind conscience of the society around her. And Celia was no longer the eternal cherub, but a thorn in her spirit, a pink-and-white nullifidian, worse than any discouraging presence in the pilgrim's progress. The fad of drawing plans. What was life worth? What great faith was possible when the whole effect of one's actions could be withered up into such parched rubbish as that? When she got out of the carriage, her cheeks were pale and her eyelids red. She was an image of sorrow, and her uncle who met her in the hall would have been alarmed if Celia had not been so close to her, looking so pretty and composed, that he had once concluded Dorothea's tears to have their origin in her excessive religiousness. He had returned, during their absence, from a journey to the county town, about a petition for the pardon of some criminal. "'Well, my dears,' he said kindly, as they went up to kiss him, "'I hope nothing disagreeable has happened while I've been away.' "'No, uncle,' said Celia. "'We have been to Freshet to look at the cottages. "'We thought you would have been at home to lunch.' "'I came by Lowick to lunch. "'You didn't know I came by Lowick. "'And I've brought a couple of pamphlets for you, Dorothea. "'In the library, you know. "'They lie on the table in the library.' It seemed as if an electric stream went through Dorothea, thrilling her from despair into expectation. They were pamphlets about the early church. The oppression of Celia, Tantrip, and Sir James was shaken off, and she walked straight to the library. Celia went upstairs. Mr. Brooke was detained by a message, but when he re-entered the library, he found Dorothea seated and already deep in one of the pamphlets, which had some marginal manuscript of Mr. Casabon's. "'taking it in as eagerly as she might have taken in the scent of a fresh bouquet "'after a dry, hot, dreary walk. "'She was getting away from Tipton and Freshet, "'and her own sad liability to tread in the wrong places on her way to the New Jerusalem. "'Mr. Brooke sat down in his armchair, stretched his legs towards the wood fire, "'which had fallen into a wondrous mass of glowing dice between the dogs, "'and rubbed his hands gently, looking very mildly towards Dorothea.' but with a neutral, leisurely air, as if he had nothing particular to say. Dorothea closed her pamphlet, as soon as she was aware of her uncle's presence, and rose as if to go. Usually, she would have been interested about her uncle's merciful errand on behalf of the criminal, but her late agitation had made her absent-minded. "'I came back by Lowick, you know,' said Mr. Brooke, not as if with any intention to arrest her departure, but apparently from his usual tendency to say what he had said before." This fundamental principle of human speech was markedly exhibited by in Mr. Brooke. I lunched there and saw Casabon's library and that kind of thing. There's a sharp air driving. Won't you sit down, my dear? 
You look cold. Dorothea felt inclined to accept the invitation. Sometimes, when her uncle's easy way of taking things did not happen to be exasperating, it was rather soothing. She threw off her mantle and bonnet and sat down opposite to him, enjoying the glow but lifting up her beautiful hands for a screen. They were not thin hands or small hands, but powerful, feminine, maternal hands. She seemed to be holding them up in propitiation for her passionate desire to know and to think which in the unfriendly mediums of Tipton and Freshet had issued in crying and red eyelids. She bethought herself now of the condemned criminal. What news have you brought about the sheep-stealer, Uncle? What, poor Bunch? Well, it seems we can't get him off. He is to be hanged. Dorothea's brow took an expression of reprobation and pity. Hanged, you know, said Mr. Brooke with a quiet nod. Poor Romilly. He would have helped us. I knew Romilly. Cossabon didn't know Romilly. He's a little buried in books, you know, Cossabon is. When a man has great studies and is writing a great work, he must, of course, give up seeing much of the world. How can he go about making acquaintances? That's true. But a man mopes, you know. I've always been a bachelor, too, but I have that sort of disposition that I never moped. It was my way to go about everywhere and take in everything. I never moped, but I can see that Casabon does, you know. He wants a companion. A companion, you know. It would be a great honor to anyone to be his companion, said Dorothea energetically. You like him, eh? said Mr. Brooke, without showing any surprise or other emotion. Well, now, I've known Casabon ten years, ever since he came to Lowick, but I never got anything out of him. Any ideas, you know. However, he is a tip-top man, and maybe a bishop. That kind of thing, you know, if Peel stays in. And he has a very high opinion of you, my dear. Dorothea could not speak. The fact is, he has a very high opinion indeed of you. And he speaks uncommonly well, says Gossipon. He has deferred to me, you not being of age. In short, I have promised to speak to you, though I told him I thought there was not much chance. I was bound to tell him that. I said my niece is very young, and that kind of thing. But I didn't think it necessary to go into everything. However, the long and the short of it is that he has asked my permission to make you an offer of marriage. Of marriage, you know, said Mr. Brooke with his explanatory nod. I thought it better to tell you, my dear. No one could have detected any anxiety in Mr. Brooke's manner. But he did really wish to know something of his niece's mind, that there were any need for advice, he might give it in time. What feeling he, as a magistrate who had taken in so many ideas, could make room for, was unmixedly kind. Since Dorothea did not speak immediately, he repeated, I thought it better to tell you, my dear. Thank you, uncle, said Dorothea in a clear, unwavering tone. I'm very grateful to Mr. Casabon. If he makes me an offer, I shall accept him. I admire and honor him more than any man I ever saw. Mr. Brooke paused a little, and then said in a lingering low tone, Ah? Uh-huh. Well, he is a good match in some respects, but now Chetham is a good match, and our land lies together. I shall never interfere against your wishes, my dear. People should have their own way in marriage and that sort of thing, up to a certain point, you know. I have always said that, up to a certain point. I wish you to marry well. And I have good reason to believe that Chetham wishes to marry you. I mention it, you know. 
"'It is impossible that I should ever marry Sir James Chetham,' said Dorothea. "'If he thinks of marrying me, he's made a great mistake.' "'That's it, you see. One never knows. I should have thought Chetham was just the sort of man a woman would like now.' "'Pray, do not mention him in that light again, uncle,' said Dorothea, feeling some of her late irritation revive. Mr. Brooke wondered, and felt that women were an inexhaustible subject of study, since even he, at his age, was not in a perfect state of scientific prediction about them. Here was a fellow like Chetham with no chance at all. Well, but Casabon now. There's no hurry. I mean for you. It's true, every year will tell upon him. He is over five and forty, you know. I should say a good seven and twenty years older than you. To be sure, if you like learning and standing and that sort of thing, can't have everything. And his income is good. He has a handsome property independent of the church. His income is good. But still, he's not young. And I must not conceal from you, my dear, that I think his health is not over strong. I know nothing else against him. I should not wish to have a husband very near my own age, said Dorothea, with grave decision. I should wish to have a husband who was above me in judgment and in all knowledge. Mr. Brooke repeated his subdued, Huh? I thought you had more of your own opinion than most girls. I thought you liked your own opinion. Liked it, you know. Cannot imagine myself living without some opinions, but I should wish to have good reasons for them, and a wise man could help me to see which opinions had the best foundation, and would help me to live according to them. Very true. You couldn't put the thing better. Couldn't put it better beforehand, you know. But there are oddities in things, continued Mr. Brooke, whose conscience was really roused to do the best he could for his niece on this occasion. Life isn't cast in a mold, not cut out by rule and line and that sort of thing. I never married myself, and it will be the better for you and yours. The fact is, I never loved anyone well enough to put myself into a noose for them. It is a noose, you know. Temper now. There's temper. And a husband likes to be master. I know that I must expect trials, uncle. Marriage is a state of higher duties. I never thought of it as a mere personal ease, said poor Dorothea. Well, you're not fond of show. A great establishment, balls, diners, dinners, that kind of thing. I can see that Casabon's ways might suit you better than Chetham's. Then you shall do as you like, my dear. I would not hinder Casabon. I said so at once for there is no knowing how anything may turn out. You have not the same tastes as every young lady, and a clergyman and scholar, who may be a bishop, that kind of thing, may suit you better than Chetham. Chetham is a good fellow, a good, sound-hearted fellow, you know, but he doesn't go much into ideas. I did, when I was his age. But Casabon's eyes, now, I think he has hurt them a little, with too much reading. To be all the happier, uncle, the more room there was for me to help him, said Dorothea ardently. You've quite made up your mind, I see. Well, my dear, the fact is, I have a letter for you in my pocket. Mr. Brooke handed the letter to Dorothea, but as she rose to go away, he added, There's not too much hurry, my dear. Think about it, you know. When Dorothea had left him, he reflected that he had certainly spoken strongly. He had put the risks of marriage before her in a striking manner. It was his duty to do so. But as to pretending to be wise for young people, no uncle, however much he had traveled in his youth, absorbed the new ideas and dined with celebrities now deceased to pretend to judge what sort of marriage would turn out well for a young girl who preferred Casabon to Chetham. In short, woman was a problem which, 
since Mr. Brooks' mind felt blank before it, could be hardly less complicated than the revolutions of an irregular solid. Chapter 5 This was Mr. Casabon's letter. My dear Miss Brooke, I have your guardian's permission to address you on a subject than which I have none more at heart. I'm not, I trust, mistaken in the recognition of some deeper correspondence than that of date, in the fact that a consciousness of need in my own life had arisen contemporaneously with the possibility of my becoming acquainted with you. For in the first hour of meeting you, I had an impression of your eminent and perhaps exclusive fitness to supply that need, connected, I may say, with such activity of the affections as even the preoccupations of a work too special to be abdicated could not uninterruptedly dissimulate. And each succeeding opportunity for observation has given the impression an added depth by convincing me more emphatically of that fitness which I had preconceived, and thus evoking more decisively those affections to which I have but now referred. Our conversations have, I think, made sufficiently clear to you the tenor of my life and purposes. A tenor unsuited, I am aware, to the commoner order of minds. But I have discerned in you an elevation of thought and a capability of devotedness, which I had hitherto not conceived to be compatible either with the early bloom of youth or with those graces of sex that may be set at once to win and to confer distinction when combined, as they notably are in you, with the mental qualities above indicated. It was, I confess, beyond my hope to meet with this rare combination of elements both solid and attractive, adapted to supply, aid in graver labors, and to cast a charm over vacant hours. And but for the event of my introduction to you, which, let me again say, I trust not to be superficially coincident with foreshadowing needs, but providentially related thereto, as stages towards the completion of a life's plan, I should presumably have gone on to the last without any attempt to lighten my solitariness by a matrimonial union. Such, my dear Miss Brooke, is the accurate statement of my feelings, and I rely on your kind indulgence in venturing now to ask you how far your own are of a nature to confirm my happy presentiment. To be accepted by you as your husband and the earthly guardian of your welfare, I shall regard as the highest of providential gifts. In return, I can at least offer you an affection hitherto unwasted, and the faithful consecration of a life which, however short in the sequel, has no backward pages whereon, if you choose to turn them, you will find records such as might justly cause you either bitterness or shame. I await the expression of your sentiments with an anxiety which it would be the part of wisdom, were it possible, to divert by a more arduous labor than usual. But in this order of experience I am still young, and in looking forward to an unfavorable possibility I cannot but feel that resignation to solitude will be more difficult after the temporary illumination of hope. In any case, I shall remain. Yours with sincere devotion, Edward Casabon. Dorothea trembled while she read this letter. Then she fell on her knees, buried her face, and sobbed. She could not pray. Under the rush of solemn emotion in which thoughts became vague and images floated uncertainly, she could but cast herself, with a childlike sense of reclining, in the lap of a divine consciousness which sustained her own. She remained in that attitude till it was time to dress for dinner. How it could occur to her to examine the letter, to look to it critically as a profession of love. Her whole soul was possessed by the fact that a fuller life was opening before her. She was a neophyte about to enter on a higher grade of initiation. 
She was going to have room for the energies which stirred uneasily under the dimness and pressure of her own ignorance and the petty peremptoriness of the world's habits. Now she would be able to devote herself to a large yet definite duties. Now she would be allowed to live continually in the light of a mind that she could reverence. This hope was not unmixed with the glow of proud delight, the joyous maiden's surprise that she was chosen by the man whom her admiration had chosen. All Dorothea's passion was transfused through a mind struggling towards an ideal life. The radiance of her transfigured girlhood fell on the first object that came within its level. The impetus with which inclination became resolution was heightened by those little events of the day which had roused her discontent with the actual conditions of her life. After dinner, when Celia was playing an air with variations, a small kind of tinkling which symbolized the aesthetic part of the young lady's education, Dorothea went up to her room to answer Mr. Casabon's letter. Why should she defer the answer? She wrote it over three times, not because she wished to change the wording, but because her hand was unusually uncertain, and she could not bear that Mr. Casabon should think her handwriting bad and illegible. She piqued herself on writing a hand in which each letter was distinguishable without any large range of conjecture, and she meant to make much use of this accomplishment to save Mr. Casabon's eyes. Three times she wrote, My dear Mr. Casabon, I am very grateful to you for loving me and thinking me worthy to be your wife. I can look forward to no better happiness than that which would be one with yours. If I said more, it would only be the same thing written out at greater length, for I cannot now dwell on any other thought than that I may be through life. Yours devotedly, Dorothea Brooke. Later in the evening, she followed her uncle into the library to give him the letter, that he might send it in the morning. He was surprised, but his surprise only issued in a few moments' silence, during which he pushed about various objects on his writing table, and finally stood with his back to the fire, his glasses on his nose, looking at the address of Dorothea's letters. "'Have you thought enough about this, my dear?' he said at last. "'There was no need to think long, uncle. I know of nothing to make me vacillate. If I changed my mind, it must be because of something important and entirely new to me.' "'Ah, then you've accepted him. Then Chetham has no chance. Has Chetham offended you?' Offended you, you know? What is it you don't like in Chetham? There's nothing that I like in him, said Dorothea, rather impetuously. Mr. Brooke threw his head and shoulders backward, as if someone had thrown a light missile at him. Dorothea immediately felt some self-rebuke and said, I mean in the light of a husband. He's very kind, I think. Really very good about the cottages. A well-meaning man. But you must have a scholar. And that sort of thing? Well, it lies a little in our family. I had it myself. That love of knowledge and going into everything. A little too much. It took me too far. That that sort of thing doesn't often run in the female line. Or it runs underground, like the rivers in Greece. You know, it comes out in the sons. Clever sons, clever mothers. I went a good deal into that at one time. However, my dear, I've always said that people should do as they like in these things up to a certain point. I couldn't, as your guardian, have consented to a bad match, but Casabon stands well. His position is good. I'm afraid Chetham will be hurt, though, and Mrs. Cadwallader will blame me. That evening, of course, Celia knew nothing of what had happened. She attributed Dorothea's abstracted manner and the evidence of further crying since they had got home to the temper she'd been in about Sir James Chetham in the buildings, and was careful not to give further offense. 
Having once said what she wanted to say, Celia had no disposition to recur to disagreeable subjects. It had been her nature when a child never to quarrel with anyone, only to observe with wonder that they quarreled with her, and looked like turkey cocks, whereupon she was ready to play at cat's cradle with them whenever they recovered themselves. And as to Dorothea, it had always been her way to find something wrong in her sister's words, though Celia inwardly protested that she always said just how things were and nothing else. She never did and never could put words together out of her own head. But the best of Dodo was that she did not keep angry for long together. Now, though they had hardly spoken to each other all the evening, yet when Celia put by her work, intending to go to bed, a proceeding in which she was always much the earlier, Dorothea, who was seated on a low stool, unable to occupy herself except in meditation, said, with the musical intonation which in moments of deep but quiet feeling made her speech like a fine bit of recitative, "'Celia, dear, come and kiss me,' holding her arms open as she spoke. Celia knelt down to get to the right level and gave her little butterfly kiss, while Dorothea encircled her with gentle arms and pressed her lips gravely on each cheek in turn. "'Don't sit up, Dodo. You're so pale tonight. "'Go to bed soon,' said Celia in a comfortable way, without any touch of pathos. "'No, dear, I'm very, very happy,' said Dorothea fervently. "'So much the better,' thought Celia. "'But how strangely Dodo goes from one extreme to the other.' The next day at luncheon, the butler, handing something to Mr. Brooke, said, "'Jonas has come back, sir, and has brought this letter.' Mr. Brooke read the letter, and then, nodding toward Dorothea, said, "'Gossip on, my dear. He will be here to dinner. He didn't wait to write more. Didn't wait, you know.' could not seem remarkable to Celia that a dinner guest should be announced to her sister beforehand, but, her eyes following the same direction as her uncle's, she was struck with the peculiar effect of the announcement on Dorothea." seemed as if something like the reflection of a white sunlit wing had passed across her features, ending in one of her rare blushes. For the first time it entered into Celia's mind that there might be something more between Mr. Casabon and her sister than his delight in bookish talk and her delight in listening. Hitherto she had classed the admiration for this ugly and learned acquaintance with the admiration for Monsieur Leray at Lausanne, also ugly and learned. Dorothea had never been tired of listening to old Monsieur Loray when Celia's feet were as cold as possible, and when it had really become dreadful to see the skin of his bald head moving about. Why, then, should her enthusiasm not extend to Mr. Casabon simply in the way as to Monsieur Loray? And it seemed probable that all learned men had a sort of schoolmaster's view of young people. But now Celia was really startled at the suspicion which had darted into her mind. She was seldom taken by surprise in this way. Her marvelous quickness in observing a certain order of signs generally preparing her to expect such outward events as she had an interest in. Now that she now imagined Mr. Casabon to be already an accepted lover, she had only begun to feel disgust at the possibility that anything in Dorothea's mind could tend towards such an issue. Here was something really to vex her about Dodo. It was all very well not to accept Sir James Chetham, but the idea of marrying Mr. Casabon. Celia felt a sort of shame, mingled with a sense of the ludicrous. But perhaps Dodo, if she were really bordering on such an extravagance, might be turned away from it. Experience had often shown that her impressibility might be calculated on. The day was damp, and they were not going to walk out. So they both went up to their sitting room, and there Celia observed that Dorothea, instead of settling down with her usual diligent interest to some occupation, simply leaned her elbow on an open book and looked out of the window at the great cedar silvered with the damp. 
She herself had taken up the making of a toy for the curate's children, and was not going to enter on any subject too precipitately. Dorothea was, in fact, thinking that it was desirable for Celia to know of the momentous change in Mr. Casabon's position since he had last been in the house. It did not seem fair to leave her in ignorance of what would necessarily affect her attitude towards him, but it was impossible not to shrink from telling her. Dorothea accused herself of some meanness in this timidity. It was always odious to her to have any small fears or contrivances about her actions, but at this moment she was seeking the highest aid possible that she might not dread the corrosiveness of Celia's pretty carnally-minded prose. Her reverie was broken, and the difficulty of decision banished by Celia's small and rather guttural voice speaking in its usual tone, of a remark aside or a by-the-by. Is anyone coming to dine besides Mr. Casabon? Not that I know of. I hope there's someone else. Then I shall not hear him eat his soup, so. And what is there remarkable about his soup eating? Really, Dodo, can't you hear how he scrapes his spoon? And he always blinks before he speaks. I don't know whether Locke blinks, but I'm sure I'm sorry for those who sat opposite to him if he did. Celia, said Dorothea with emphatic gravity. Pray, don't make any more observations of that kind. Why not? They're quite true, returned Celia, who had her reasons for persevering, though she was beginning to be a little afraid. Many things are true, which only the commonest minds observe. Then I think the commonest minds must be rather useful. I think it is a pity Mr. Casabon's mother had not a commoner mind. She might have taught him better. Celia was inwardly frightened and ready to run away, now that she had hurled this light javelin. Dorothea's feelings had gathered to an avalanche, and there could be no further preparation. It's right to tell you, Celia, that I'm engaged to marry Mr. Casabon. Perhaps Celia had never turned so pale before. The paper man she was making would have had his leg injured, but for her habitual care of whatever she held in her hands. She laid the fragile figure down at once and sat perfectly still for a few moments. When she spoke, there was a tear gathering. Oh, Dodo, I hope you will be happy. Her sisterly tenderness could not but surmount other feelings at this moment, and her fears were the fears of affection. Dorothea was still hurt and agitated. It is quite decided, then, said Celia, in an odd undertone. An uncle knows? I've accepted Mr. Casabon's offer. My uncle brought me the letter that contained it. He knew about it beforehand. I beg your pardon if I've said anything to hurt you, Dodo, said Celia with a slight sob. She never could have thought that she should feel as she did. There was something funereal in the whole affair, and Mr. Casabon seemed to be the officiating clergyman about whom it would be indecent to make remarks. Never mind, Kitty, do not grieve. We should never admire the same people. I often offend in something of the same way. I'm apt to speak too strongly of those who don't please me. In spite of this magnanimity, Dorothea was still smarting, perhaps as much from Celia's subdued astonishment as from her small criticisms. Of course, all the world round Tipton would be out of sympathy with this marriage. Dorothea knew of no one who thought as she did about life and its best objects. Nevertheless, before the evening was at an end, she was very happy. In an hour's tete-a-tete -tete with Mr. Casabon, she talked to him with more freedom than she had ever felt before, even pouring out her joy at the thought of devoting herself to him, and of learning how she might best share and further all his great ends. Mr. Casabon was touched with an unknown delight. What man would not have been at this childlike, unrestrained ardor? He was not surprised. What lover would have been 
that he should be the object of it. My dear young lady, Miss Brooke, Dorothea, he said, pressing her hand between his hands. This is a happiness greater than I had ever imagined to be in reserve for me. But I should ever meet with a mind and person so rich in the mingled graces which could render marriage desirable was far indeed from my conception. You have all, nay, more than all, those qualities which I have ever regarded as the characteristic excellences of womanhood. The great charm of your sex is its capability of an ardent, self-sacrificing affection, and herein we see its fitness to round and complete the existence of our own. Hitherto I have known few pleasures, save of the severer kind. My satisfactions have been those of the solitary student. I have been little disposed to gather flowers that would wither in my hand, but now I shall pluck them with eagerness to place them in your bosom. No speech could have been more thoroughly honest in its intention. The frigid rhetoric at the end was as sincere as the bark of a dog or the cawing of an amorous rook. Would it not be rash to conclude that there was no passion behind those sonnets to Delia, which strike us as the thin music of a mandolin? Dorothea's faith supplied all that Mr. Casabon's words seemed to leave unsaid. What believer sees a disturbing omission or infelicity? The text, whether of prophet or of poet, extends for whatever we can put into it, and even his bad grammar is sublime. I'm very ignorant. You'll quite wonder at my ignorance, said Dorothea. I have so many thoughts that may be quite mistaken, and now I shall be able to tell them all to you and ask you about them. But, she added, with rapid imagination of Mr. Costabon's probable feeling, I will not trouble you too much, only when you're inclined to listen to me. You must often be weary with the pursuit of subjects in your own track. I shall gain enough if you will take me with you there. How should I be able now to persevere in any path without your companionship? said Mr. Casaubon, kissing her candid brow, and feeling that heaven had vouchsafed him a blessing in every way peculiar wants. He was being unconsciously wrought upon by the charms of a nature which was entirely without hidden calculations, either for immediate effects or for remoter ends. It was this which made Dorothea so childlike, and according to some judges, so stupid, with all her reputed cleverness, as, for example, in the present case of throwing herself, metaphorically speaking, at Mr. Casabon's feet, and kissing his unfashionable shoe-ties as if he were a Protestant pope. She was not in the least teaching Mr. Casabon to ask if he were good enough for her, but merely asking herself anxiously how she could be good enough for Mr. Casabon. Before he left the next day, it had been decided that the marriage should take place within six weeks. Why not? Mr. Casabon's house was ready. It was not a parsonage, but a considerable mansion, with much land attached to it. The parsonage was inhabited by the curate, who did all the duty except preaching the morning sermon. Chapter 6 As Mr. Casabon's carriage was passing out of the gateway, and arrested the entrance of a pony phaeton driven by a lady with a servant seated behind. It was doubtful whether the recognition had been mutual, for Mr. Casabon was looking absently before him. But the lady was quick-eyed and threw a nod and how-do-you-do in the nick of time. In spite of her shabby bonnet and very old Indian shawl, it was plain that the lodgekeeper regarded her as an important personage, from the low curtsy which was dropped on the entrance of the small phaeton. "'Well, Mrs. Fitchett, how are your foals laying now?' said the high-colored, dark-eyed lady, with the clearest, chiseled utterance. "'Pretty well for laying, madam, but they've taken to eating their eggs. No peace of mind with them at all.' "'Oh, the cannibals! Better sell them cheap at once.' "'What will you sell them, a couple?' One can't eat fowls of a bad character at a high price. Well, madam, half a crown. 
I couldn't let him go. Not under. Half a crown. These times. Come now. For the rector's chicken broth on a Sunday. He's consumed all ours that I can spare. You're half paid with the sermon, Mrs. Fitchett. Remember that. Take a pair of tumbler pigeons for them. Little beauties. You must come and see them. You have no tumblers among your pigeons. Well, madam, Master Fitchett shall go and see him after work. He's very hot on new sorts, to oblige you. Oblige me? It'll be the best bargain he ever made. A pair of church pigeons for a couple of wicked Spanish fowls that eat their own eggs. Don't you and Fitchett boast too much, that's all. The phaeton was driven onwards with the last words, leaving Mrs. Fitchett laughing and shaking her head slowly, with an interjectional, Surely, surely from which it might be inferred that she would have found the countryside somewhat duller if the rector's lady had been less free-spoken and less of a skinflint. Indeed, both the farmers and laborers in the parishes of Freshet and Tipton would have felt a sad lack of conversation but for the stories about what Miss Cadwallader said and did. A lady of immeasurably high birth, descended, as it were, from unknown earls, dim as the crowd of heroic shades, who pleaded poverty, pared down prices, and cut jokes in the most companionable manner, but with a turn of tongue that lets you know who she was. Such a lady gave a neighborliness to both rank and religion, and mitigated the bitterness of uncommuted tithe. A much more exemplary character with an infusion of sour dignity would not have furthered their comprehension of the 39 articles, and would have been less socially uniting. Mr. Brooke, seeing Mrs. Cadwallader's merits from a different point of view, winced a little when her name was announced in the library, where he was sitting alone. See you've had our Lowick Cicero here, she said, seating herself comfortably, throwing back her wraps and showing a thin but well-built figure. I suspect you and he are brewing some bad polities, else you would not be seeing so much of the lively man. I shall inform against you. Remember, you're both suspicious characters since you took Peel's side about the Catholic bill. I shall tell everybody that you are going to put up for Middlemarch on the weak side when old Pinkerton resigns, and that Casabon is going to help you in an underhand manner going to bribe the voters with pamphlets and throw open the public houses to distribute them. Come, confess. Nothing of the sort, said Mr. Brooke, smiling and rubbing his eyeglasses, but really blushing a little at the impeachment. Crossabyan and I don't talk politics much. He doesn't care much about the philanthropic side of things, punishments and that kind of thing. He only cares about church questions. That is not my line of action, you know. Rather too much, my friend. I've heard of your doings. Who was it that sold his bit of land to the papists at Middlemarch? I believe you bought it on purpose. You're a perfect Guy Fox. See if you're not burnt in effigy this 5th of November coming. Humphrey would not come to quarrel with you about it, so I am come. Very good. I was prepared to be persecuted for not persecuting. Not persecuting, you know. There you go. That is a piece of claptrap you've got ready for the hustings. Now do not let them lure you to the hustings, my dear Mr. Brooke. A man always makes a fool of himself, speechifying. There's no excuse but being on the right side, so that you can ask a blessing on your humming and hawing. You will lose yourself, I forewarn you. You will make a Saturday pie of all parties' opinions and be pelted by everybody. That is what I expect, you know, said Mr. Brooke not wishing to betray how little he enjoyed this prophetic sketch. What I expect as an independent man. As to the Whigs, a man who goes with the thinkers is not likely to be hooked on by any party. He may go with them up to a certain point. Up to a certain point, you know. But that is what you ladies never understand. Where your certain point is? No. 
I should like to be told how a man can have any certain point when he belongs to no party, leading a roving life and never letting his friends know his address. Nobody knows where Brooke will be. There's no counting on Brooke. That's what people say of you, to be quite frank. Now, do turn respectable. How will you like going to sessions with everybody looking shy on you and you with a bad conscience and an empty pocket? I don't pretend to argue with a lady on politics, said Mr. Brooke, with an air of smiling indifference, but feeling rather unpleasantly conscious that this attack of Mrs. Cadwallader's had opened the defensive campaign to which certain rash steps had exposed him. Your sex are not thinkers, you know. Varium et mutabile semper. That kind of thing. You don't know Virgil. I knew. Mr. Brooke reflected in time that he had not had the personal acquaintance of the Augustan poet. I was going to say, poor Stoddart, you know. That was what he said. You ladies are always against an independent attitude. A man's caring for nothing but truth and that sort of thing. And there's no part of the county where opinion is narrower than it is here. I don't mean to throw stones, you know, but somebody is wanted to take the independent line, and if I don't take it, who will? Who? Why, any upstart who has got neither blood nor position. People of standing should consume their independent nonsense at home, not hawk it about. And you! Who are going to marry your niece, as good as your daughter, to one of our best men? Sir James would be cruelly annoyed. It will be too hard on him if you turn round now and make yourself a Whig signboard. Mr. Brooke again winced inwardly, for Dorothea's engagement had no sooner been decided than he had thought of Mrs. Cadwallader's prospective taunts. It might have been easy for ignorant observers to say, quarrel with Mrs. Cadwallader, but where is a country gentleman to go who quarrels with his oldest neighbors? Who could taste the fine flavor in the name of Brooke if it were delivered casually like wine without a seal? Certainly a man can only be cosmopolitan up to a certain point. I hope Chetham and I shall always be good friends, but I am sorry to say there is no prospect of his marrying my niece, said Mr. Brooke, much relieved to see through the window that Celia was coming in. Why not, said Mrs. Cadwallader with a sharp note of surprise. It's hardly a fortnight since you and I were talking about it. My niece has chosen another suitor. Has chosen him, you know. I've had nothing to do with it. I should have preferred Chetham, and I should have said Chetham was the man any girl would have chosen. But there is no accounting for these things. Your sex is capricious, you know. Why, whom do you mean to say that you're going to let her marry? Mrs. Cadwallader's mind was rapidly surveying the possibilities of choice for Dorothea. But here Celia entered, blooming from a walk in the garden, and the greeting with her delivered Mr. Brooke from the necessity of answering immediately. He got up hastily and saying, By the way, I must speak to Wright about the horses, shuffled quickly out of the room. My dear child, what is this? It's about your sister's engagement? said Mrs. Cadwallader. She's engaged to marry Mr. Casabon, said Celia, resorting, as usual, to the simplest statement of fact and enjoying this opportunity of speaking to the rector's wife alone. This is frightful. How long has it been going on? I only knew of it yesterday. They are to be married in six weeks. Well, my dear, I wish you joy of your brother-in-law. I'm so sorry for Dorothea. Sorry? It's her doing, I suppose. Yes. She says Mr. Casabon has a great soul. With all my heart. Oh, Mrs. Cadwallader, I don't think it could be nice to marry a man with a great soul. Well, my dear, take warning. You know the look of one now. When the next one comes and wants to marry you, don't you accept him. I'm sure I never should. No. One such in a family is enough. 
So your sister never cared about Sir James Chetham? What would you have said to him for a brother-in-law? I should have liked that very much. I'm sure he would have been a good husband, only... Celia added with a slight blush. She sometimes seemed to blush as she breathed. I don't think he would have suited Dorothea. Not high-flown enough? Dodo is very strict. She thinks so much about everything and is so particular about what one says. Sir James never seemed to please her. She must have encouraged him, I'm sure. That's not very creditable. Please don't be angry with Dodo. She does not see things. She thought so much about the cottages, and she was so rude to Sir James sometimes. He's so kind. He never noticed it. Well, said Mrs. Cadwallader, putting on her shawl and rising as if in haste, I must go straight to Sir James and break this to him. He will have brought his mother back by this time, and I must call. Your uncle will never tell him. We are all disappointed, my dear. Young people should think of their families in marrying. I set a bad example, married a poor clergyman, and made myself a pitiable object among the Bracies, obliged to get my coals by stratagem, and pray to heaven for my salad oil. However, Casabon has money enough. I must do him that justice. As to his blood, I suppose the family quarterings are three cuttlefish, sable, and a commentator rampant. By the by, before I go... My dear, I must speak to your Mrs. Carter about pastry. I want to send my young cook to learn of her. Poor people with four children, like us, you know, can't afford to keep a good cook. I have no doubt Mrs. Carter will oblige me. Sir James's cook is a perfect dragon. In less than an hour, Mrs. Cadwallader had circumvented Mrs. Carter and driven to Freshet Hall, which was not far from her own personage, her husband being resident in Freshet and keeping a curate in Tipton. Sir James Chetham had returned from the short journey which had kept him absent for a couple of days, and had changed his dress, intending to ride over to Tipton Grange. His horse was standing at the door when Mrs. Cadwallader drove up, and he immediately appeared there himself, whip in hand. Lady Chetham had not yet returned, but Mrs. Cadwallader's errand could not be dispatched in the presence of grooms, so she asked to be taken into the conservatory close by, to look at the new plants. And on coming to a contemplative stand, she said, "'We have a great shock for you.' I hope you're not so far gone in love as you pretended to be. It was no use protesting against Mrs. Cadwallader's way of putting things, but Sir James's countenance changed a little. He felt a vague alarm. I do believe Brooke is going to expose himself after all. I accused him of meaning to stand for Middlemarch on the liberal side, and he looked silly and never denied it. Talked about the independent line and the usual nonsense. Is that all? said Sir James, much relieved. Why? rejoined Mrs. Cadwallader with a sharper note. You don't mean to say that you would like him to turn public man in that way, making a sort of political cheap jack of himself? He might be persuaded, I should think. He would not like the expense. That is what I told him. He's vulnerable to reason there. Always a few grains of common sense and an ounce of miserliness. Miserliness is a capital quality to run in families. It's a safe side for madness to dip on. And there must be a little crack in the Brooke family, else we should not see what we are to see. What? Brooke standing for Middlemarch? Worse than that. I really feel a little responsible. I always told you Miss Brooke would be such a fine match. I knew there was a great deal of nonsense in her, a flighty sort of methodistical stuff. But these things wear out of girls. However, I am taken by surprise for once. What do you mean, Mrs. Cadwallader? said Sir James, 
his fear lest Miss Brooke should have run away to join the Moravian Brethren or some preposterous sect unknown to good society, was a little allayed by the knowledge that Mrs. Cadwallader always made the worst of things. What has happened to Miss Brooke? Pray, speak out. Very well. She's engaged to be married. Mrs. Cadwallader paused a few moments, observing the deeply hurt expression in her friend's face, which he was trying to conceal by a nervous smile while he whipped his boot. But she soon added, Engaged to Casaban. Sir James let his whip fall and stooped to pick it up. Perhaps his face had never before gathered so much concentrated disgust as when he turned to Mrs. Cadwallader and repeated, Casaban. Even so, you know my errand now. Good God, it's horrible. He's no better than a mummy. The point of view has to be allowed for instead of a blooming and disappointed rival. She says he is a great soul, a great bladder for dried peas to rattle in, said Mrs. Cadwallader. What business has an old bachelor like that to marry, said Sir James. He has one foot in the grave. He means to draw it out again, I suppose. Brooke ought not to allow it. He should insist on its being put off till she's of age. She would think better of it then. What is a guardian for? As if you could ever squeeze a resolution out of Brooke. Cadwallader might talk to him. <laughs> Not he. Humphrey finds everybody charming. I never can get him to abuse Casabon. He will even speak well of the bishop, though I tell him it's unnatural in a beneficed clergyman. What can one do with a husband who attends so little to the decencies? I hide it as well as I can by abusing everybody myself. Come, come, cheer up. You are well rid of Miss Brooke, a girl who would have been requiring you to see the stars by daylight. Between ourselves, little Celia is worth two of her, and likely, after all, to be the better match. For this marriage to Casaban is as good as going to a nunnery. <laughs> oh, on my own account, it is for Mrs. Brooke's sake. I think her friends should try to use their influence. Well, Humphrey doesn't know yet. But when I tell him, you may depend on it, he will say, Why not? Casaban is a good fellow, and young. Young enough. These charitable people never know vinegar from wine till they've swallowed it and got the colic. However, if I were a man, I should prefer Celia, especially when Dorothea was gone. The truth is, you have been courting one and have won the other. I can see that she admires you almost as much as a man expects to be admired. If it were anyone but me who said so, you might think it exaggeration. Goodbye. Sir James handed Mrs. Cadwallader to the Phaeton, then jumped on his horse. He was not going to renounce his ride because of his friend's unpleasant news, only to ride the faster in some other direction than that of Tipton Grange. Now why on earth should Mrs. Cadwallader have been at all busy about Miss Brooke's marriage, and why, when one match that she liked to think she had a hand in was frustrated, should she have straightway contrived the preliminaries of another? Was there any ingenious plot, any hide-and-seek course of action which might be detected by a careful telescopic watch? Not at all telescope might have swept the parishes of Tipton and Freshet, the whole area visited by Mrs. Cadwallader and her phaeton, without witnessing any interview that could excite suspicion, or any scene from which she did not return with the same unperturbed keenness of eye and the same high natural color. In fact, if that convenient vehicle had existed in the days of the Seven Sages, one of them would doubtless have remarked that you can know little of women by following them about in their pony phaetons. Even with a microscope directed on a water drop, we find ourselves making interpretations which turn out to be rather coarse, 
For whereas under a weak lens you may seem to see a creature exhibiting an active veracity into which other small creatures actively play as if they were so many animated tax pennies, a stronger lens reveals to you certain tiniest hairlets which make vortices for these victims, while the swallower waits passively at the receipt of custom. In this way, metaphorically speaking, a strong lens applied to Mrs. Cadwallader's matchmaking will show a play of minute causes producing what may be called thought and speech vertices to bring her the world. All the more did the affairs of the great world interest her, but communicated in the letters of highborn relations, the way in which fascinating younger sons had gone to the dogs by marrying their mistresses, the fine old-blooded idiocy of young Lord Tapir, and the furious gouty humors of old Lord Megatherium, the exact crossing of genealogies which had brought a coronet into a new branch and widened the relations of scandal. These were topics of which she retained details with the utmost accuracy, and reproduced them in an excellent pickle of epigrams, which she herself enjoyed the more because she believed as unquestionably in birth and no birth as she did in game and vermin. She would never have disowned anyone on the ground of poverty. A de Bracy reduced to take his dinner in a basin would have seemed to her an example of pathos worth exaggerating, and I fear his aristocratic vices would not have horrified her. But her feeling towards the vulgar rich was a sort of religious hatred. They had probably made all their money out of high retail prices, and Mrs. Cadwallader detested high prices for everything that was not paid in kind at the rectory. Such people were no part of God's design in making the world, and their accent was an affliction to the ears. A town where such monsters abounded was hardly more than a sort of low comedy, which could not be taken account of in a well-bred scheme of the universe. Let any lady who's inclined to be hard on Mrs. Cadwallader inquire into the comprehensiveness of her own beautiful views, and be quite sure that they afford accommodation for all the lives which have the honor to coexist with hers. With such a mind, active as phosphorus, fighting everything that came near into the form that suited it, how could Mrs. Cadwallader feel that the Miss Brooks and their matrimonial prospects were alien to her, especially as it had been the habit of years for her to scold Mr. Brook with the friendliest frankness and let him know in confidence that she thought him a poor creature? From the first arrival of the young ladies in Tipton, she had prearranged Dorothea's marriage with Sir James, and if it had taken place, would have been quite sure that it was her doing. That it should not take place after she had preconceived it caused her an irritation which every thinker will sympathize with. She was the diplomatist of Dipton and Freshet, and for anything to happen in spite of her was an offensive irregularity. As to freaks like this of Miss Brooks, Mrs. Cadwallader had no patience with them, and now saw that her opinion of this girl had been infected with some of her husband's weak charitableness, these methodistical whims, that air of being more religious than the rector and curate together, came from a deeper and more constitutional disease than she had been willing to believe. However, said Mrs. Cadwallader, first to herself and afterwards to her husband, I throw her over. There was a chance. She'd married Sir James of her becoming a sane, sensible woman. He would never have contradicted her, and when a woman is not contradicted, she has no motive for obstinacy in her absurdities. But now I wish her joy of her hair shirt. It followed that Mrs. Cadwallader must decide on another plan for Sir James, and having made up her mind that it was to be the younger Miss Brooke, there could not have been a more skillful move towards the success of her plan than her hint to the baronet that he had made an impression on Celia's heart, for he was not one of those gentlemen who languish after the unattainable Sappho's apple that laughs from the topmost bough, the charms which smile like the knot of cowslips on the cliff, not to be come at by the willing hand.
He had no sonnets to write, and it could not strike him agreeably that he was not an object of preference to the woman whom he had preferred. Already the knowledge that Dorothy had chosen Mr. Casaubon had bruised his attachment and relaxed its hold. Although Sir James was a sportsman, he had some other feelings towards women than towards grouse and foxes, and did not regard his future wife in the light of prey, valuable chiefly for the excitements of the chase. Neither was he so well acquainted with the habits of primitive races as to feel that an ideal combat for her, tomahawk in hand, so to speak, was necessary to the historical continuity of the marriage tie. On the contrary, having the amiable vanity which knits us to those who are fond of us, and disinclines us to those who are indifferent, and also a good grateful nature, the mere idea that a woman had a kindness towards him spun little threads of tenderness from out his heart towards hers. Thus it happened, that after Sir James had ridden rather fast for half an hour in a direction away from Tipton Grange, he slackened his pace, and at last turned into a road which would lead him back by a shorter cut. Various feelings wrought in him the determination after all to go to the Grange today, as if nothing new had happened. He could not help rejoicing that he had never made the offer and been rejected. Mere friendly politeness required that he should call to see Dorothea about the cottages, and now happily Mrs. Cadwallader had prepared him to offer his congratulations, if necessary, without showing too much awkwardness. He really did not like it. Giving up Dorothea was very painful to him, but there was something in the resolve to make this visit forthwith and conquer all show of feeling, which was a sort of file-biting and counter-irritant, and without his distinctly recognizing the impulse, there certainly was present in him the sense that Celia would be there, and that he should pay her more attention than he had done before. We mortals, men and women, devour many a disappointment between breakfast and dinner time, keep back the tears and look a little pale about the lips, and in answer to inquiry say, oh, oh nothing. Pride helps us, and pride is not a bad thing when it only urges us to hide our own hurts, not to hurt others. Chapter 7 Mr. Casaubon, as might be expected, spent a great deal of his time at the Grange in these weeks, and the hindrance which courtship occasioned to the progress of his great work, the key to all mythologies, naturally made him look forward the more eagerly to the happy termination of courtship. But he had deliberately incurred the hindrance, having made up his mind that it was now time for him to adorn his life with the graces of female companionship, to irradiate the gloom which fatigue was apt to hang over the intervals of studious labor with the play of female fancy, and to secure in this, his culminating age, the solace of female tendance for his declining years. Hence he determined to abandon himself to the stream of feeling, and perhaps was surprised to find what an exceedingly shallow rill it was. As in droughty regions, baptism by immersion could only be performed symbolically. Mr. Casaubon found that sprinkling was the utmost approach to a plunge which his stream would afford him, and he concluded that the poets had much exaggerated the force of masculine passion. Nevertheless, he observed with pleasure that Miss Brooke showed an ardent, submissive affection which promised to fulfill his most agreeable provisions of marriage. It had once or twice crossed his mind that possibly there was some deficiency in Dorothea to account for the moderation of his abandonment, but he was unable to discern the deficiency, or to figure to himself a woman who would have pleased him better, so that there was clearly no reason to fall back upon but the exaggerations of human tradition. Could I not be preparing myself now to be more useful, said Dorothea to him one morning, early in the time of courtship? Could I not learn to read Latin and Greek aloud to you, as Milton's daughters did to their father, without understanding what they read? I fear that would be worrisome to you, said Mr. Casaubon, smiling. And indeed, if I remember rightly, the young women you've mentioned regarded that exercise in unknown tongues as a ground for rebellion against the poet. Yes, 
but in the first place they were very naughty girls, else they would have been proud to minister to such a father, and in the second place they might have studied privately and taught themselves to understand what they read, and then it would have been interesting. I hope you don't expect me to be naughty and stupid. I expect you to be all that an exquisite young lady can be in every possible relation of life. Certainly it might be a great advantage if you were able to copy the Greek character, and to that end it were well to begin with a little reading. Dorothea sees this as a precious permission. She would not have asked Mr. Cosbon at once to teach her the languages, dreading of all things to be tiresome instead of hopeful, but it was not entirely out of devotion to her future husband that she wished to know Latin and Greek. Those provinces of masculine knowledge seemed to her a standing ground from which all truth could be seen more truly. As it was, she constantly doubted her own conclusions, because she felt her own ignorance. How could she be confident that one-roomed cottages were not for the glory of God, when men who knew the classics appeared to conciliate indifference to the cottages with zeal for the glory? Perhaps even Hebrew might be necessary, at least the alphabet and a few roots, in order to arrive at the core of things, and judge soundly on the social duties of the Christians. And she had not reached that point of renunciation at which she would have been satisfied with having a wise husband. She wished, poor child, to be wise herself. Miss Brooke was certainly very naive with all her alleged cleverness. Celia, whose mind had never been thought too powerful, saw the emptiness of other people's pretensions much more readily. To have in general but little feeling seems to be the only security against feeling too much on any particular occasion. However, Mr. Cossabon consented to listen and teach for an hour together, like a schoolmaster of little boys, or rather like a lover to whom a mistress's elementary ignorance and difficulties have a touching fitness. Few scholars would have disliked teaching the alphabet under such circumstances, but Dorothea herself was a little shocked and discouraged at her own stupidity, and the answers she got to some timid questions about the value of the Greek accents gave her a painful suspicion that here indeed there might be secrets not capable of explanation to a woman's reason. Mr. Brooke had no doubt on that point, and expressed himself with his usual strength upon it one day, that he came into the library while the reading was going forward. Well, but now, Cossabon, such deep studies, classics, mathematics, that kind of thing, are too taxing for a woman. Too taxing, you know. Dorothea is learning to read the character simply, said Mr. Cossabon, evading the question. You had the very considerate thought of saving my eyes. Ah, uh, well, without understanding, you know, that may not be so bad. But there's a lightness about the feminine mind, a touch-and-go. Music, fine arts, that kind of thing. They should study those up to a certain point, women should. But in a light way, you know. A woman should be able to sit down and play you or sing you a good old English tune. That is what I like, though I've heard most things. Been at the opera in Vienna, Gluck, Mozart, everything of that sort. But I'm a conservative in music. It's not like ideas, you know. I stick to the good old tunes. Mr. Casabon is not fond of the piano, and I'm very glad he's not, said Dorothea, whose slight regard for domestic music and feminine fine art must be forgiven her, considering the small tinkling and smearing in which they chiefly consisted at that dark period. She smiled and looked up at her betrothed with grateful eyes. If he had always been asking her to play The Last Rose of Summer, she would have required much resignation. He says there's only an old harpsichord at Lowick, and it is covered with books. Ah, there you are behind Celia, my dear. Celia now plays very prettily, and is always ready to play. However, since Casabon does not like it, you are all right. 
but it's a pity you should not have little recreations of that sort, Casabon. The bow always strung, that kind of thing, you know, will not do. I never could look on it in light of a recreation to have my ears teased with measured noises, said Mr. Casabon. Tune much iterated has the ridiculous effect of making the words in my mind perform a sort of minuet to keep time, an effect hardly tolerable, I imagine, after boyhood. As to the grander forms of music, worthy to accompany solemn celebrations, and even to serve as an educating influence according to the ancient conception, I say nothing, for with these we are not immediately concerned. No, but music of that sort I should enjoy, said Dorothea. We were coming home from Lausanne. My uncle took us to hear the great organ at Freiburg, and it made me sob. That kind of thing is not healthy, my dear, said Mr. Brooke. Casabon, she will be in your hands now. You must teach my niece to take things more quietly, eh, Dorothea? He ended with a smile, not wishing to hurt his niece, but really thinking that it was perhaps better for her to be early married to so sober a fellow as Casabon, since she would not hear of Chetham. It is wonderful, though, he said to himself as he shuffled out of the room. It is wonderful that you should have liked him. However, the match is good. I should have been traveling out of my brief to have hindered it. Let Mrs. Cadwallader say what she will. He is pretty certain to be a bishop, is Casabon. That was a very seasonable pamphlet of his on the Catholic question. A deanery, at least. They owe him a deanery. And here I must vindicate a claim to philosophical reflectiveness by remarking that Mr. Brooke on this occasion little thought of the radical speech which, at a later period, he was led to make on the incomes of the bishops. What elegant historian would neglect a striking opportunity for pointing out that his heroes did not foresee the history of the world, or even their own actions? For example, that Henry of Navarre, when a Protestant baby, little thought of being a Catholic monarch, or that Alfred the Great, when he measured his laborious nights with burning candles, had no idea of future gentlemen measuring their idle days with watches. Here is a mine of truth which, however vigorously it may be worked, is likely to outlast our coal. But of Mr. Brooke I make a further remark, perhaps less warranted by precedent, namely, that if he had foreknown his speech, it might not have made any great difference. To think with the pleasure of his niece's husband having a large ecclesiastical income was one thing, to make a liberal speech was another thing, and it is a narrow mind which cannot look at a subject from various points of view. Hi friends, I wanted to take a second and just say that I neglected to do the pre-roll simply because I wanted to keep the continuity of the story flowing. I know that sounds weird, but oh, Nimona, you put enrolls in, so what is the point? It, it just, it sounded better in my head, okay? And moving the audio at the end is just too much of a hassle for me right now, so you'll take my pre, my post-editing comments and you will enjoy them. Um, if you've made it to the end, hi, um, if you don't know, my name is Nimona, and this is my podcast, Fireside Flock, a cozy reading podcast where every week we dive into books, and um, we read them, and we enjoy them together as a flock, as a community. And that's that. Uh, some little housekeeping stuff um, for those who didn't come from my Twitter. I, I do have a Twitter. Uh, it is uh, twitter.com slash nimigoat. That's where I hide and lurk and post my most nefarious gremlin thoughts at 3 a.m. I'm also on Twitch at twitch.tv slash nimigoat. Um, I do an assortment of things. Sometimes I read, sometimes I don't. So if you just enjoy the reading content and that's how you want to know me and you don't want to be 
you don't want your opinions of me to be lambasted into the ground, I would suggest staying away from my Twitter and my Twitch and just hang out with me here. I also have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash firesideflock. There are three tiers right now. There's a general support tier, which is $3 a month, helps me to fuel my caffeine addiction and, you know, buy some stuff for the podcast, helps out a little bit. Uh, the Necronomicon tier is $5 a month. You get ad-free listening and an archive of all content, past, present, and future. You also get to pick what books come next, or at the very least, contribute to a poll. And then there is the library card holder that is the top tier at $10 a month. You get everything else, plus you get the final say. You are the tiebreaker, and you get a cool little Discord to hang out in with me sometimes if I do that. We'll see the we'll see the um the the need first before I make a Discord and it sits empty and it's just me all by myself. So <laughs> uh, that should be it. I also wanted to mention that there was a little bit of tinkling and tittering in the background. That was the resident cult mutt cricket. Uh, he is a bit of a Velcro dog and he's always by my side. He's literally sitting next to me right now. So I try my best to edit it out, but I am a one goat team right now and editing is kind of hard. So if some of it leaked through, I'm sorry. I'm trying my best. Uh, I'm hoping it gets better with time. And as I get more comfortable, I found that j just recording in general was better this time around. So I won't keep you any longer. Next week will be the end of book one of Middlemarch, and then we'll move on. Sorry, <laughs> my audio cut out. Um, we'll move on to book two next week, or we should. Um, also, an edit to an edit at the end here, because I'm not going through and re-recording for the third time. Uh, the $10 a month tier on Patreon is not a Discord, actually, but I will shout you out at the end of every episode. So if you want me to say your name all cool-like and be eternally grateful to you for your sacrifices for the cult, uh, that is the way to do it. Uh, right there. Um, $10 a month, library card holder, you will be Nimona's favorite. I think that's a pretty good deal. Anyway, uh, I'm also wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on Spotify. I'm on Apple Podcasts. I'm on... Give me one second. I'm on uh, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcasts, the Podcast Index, Listen Notes, and I'm on the RSS.com community. So, you know, you can find me anywhere for the most part. I'm also not an Apple Podcast. I like. Maybe one day, once I set up the feed, I'll move there, but... Until then, uh, I am on Spotify. Make sure you follow and say hi and do all that stuff. And if you choose to follow me on Twitter, hey, you could say hi. Um, you know, I I'm around. So that should be it. I will see you guys next time. I hope you enjoyed. Bye. <laughs> you thought I was done, huh? Uh, I also wanted to uh, gauge opinions. I put in some, like fireside noises because it's like fireside flock or at a bonfire asmr stuff so let me know if you like it if you absolutely hate it i'll take it off i just wanted something to kind of like fill the space because i noticed that i also stop a lot and i try to cut those down too but sometimes it just doesn't work so yeah let me know if the fire sucks all right okay bye for real this time bye